Hey, it's Peter here with uh, my FSHD. Uh, and Carice. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I introduced myself. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, we've been away about a month, but um, we actually haven't been away. People think, oh, you're on vacation or something like that. Always working. Yeah, that's true. We leave uh, our, all our European colleagues taking up vacation for, for um, <laughs> both of us or all of us. <laughs> You think we're joking? No, it's it's actually kind of interesting, right? Because I see on Facebook that Europeans make fun of us all the time that Americans just work too much, and we make fun of Europeans for being on vacation all the time. Yeah, which is really an odd thing to make fun of people for. Well, <laughs> you enjoy just, life too much. You're, you're too happy. You're too happy. You're making too the relaxed. most of your time on Earth. <laughs> you're not stressed enough. Uh, you can see why yeah. they laugh at us. Yeah, but you know, it's still it's just you kind of deal with a lot of stress. I mean, that's you know, I actually thanks to Facebook and um, I just vacation through our work colleagues who I see are in the Greek islands or Sardinia or wherever, wherever. there's someplace fun, Yosemite even. It's possible Americans just don't know how to take vacation. We, we make vacation stressful. So they're almost, uh, I mean, I need a vacation after I go on vacation. Well, that's because you go on vacation with your family. <laughs> I love my family. But sometimes we do have a tight schedule and we're running around and it's, a, whew, so it's relaxing saw, to come back to work. I saw a quote, uh, I think it was from, um, I can't remember, I'm not sure exactly who it was, but it was a comedian you know, they talk about true life quote, you know, things, you know, observations. There is no such thing as fun for the whole family. That's true. How many people are in your family? <laughs> if there's two people, there's no such thing as fun for the My family, I'm not really sure. I got to check with the, are you talking like officially or? Well, the more uh, people you have in your family, the harder it is to please everybody. That well, is, that I've is always sure. taken the, you know, you've always, you know, I've, I'm actually, I've always been very comfortable um, traveling by myself eating by myself, going to movies by myself. Even when I was a kid, like in high school, I could go to movies by myself. Yeah. You know, I just never had any problem with that. Well, you have to, I, don't have to make any compromises. You get to do what you want. But that's exactly right. I always explain it as the minute you add one other person to the mix, now you there's... have 50% chance of doing what that's you right. want to do. <laughs> so we have a 50% chance of talking about what I want to talk about today. <laughs> but I'm your sounding board. I don't count as a real person for these purposes of the podcast. Uh, well. <laughs> Um, I need a foil. I'm here to go. Hee hee hee. <laughs> I'm just trying not to be accused of mansplaining. That's all. I'm, I'm just trying not to get canceled. That's well, actually, right. well, it's funny because you know people can. Oh, you know, you're going to get sued. You're going to get canceled. We keep waiting. It hasn't yeah, happened. Like, yet. When, please. I'm guessing the people <laughs> who would will... do that are in, would be in more trouble. Actually, there's a lot of people yeah, right. who don't want a very sharp uh, laser beam pointed at them. If, yeah. You know well, what I mean? You know, that's right. <laughs> threats, idle threats. But, but I mean, yeah. Seriously, it's like, well, so what? Then we could go on vacation, go fishing up in Tahoe. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Whatever. I know, exactly. Please, cancel us. please go cancel ahead. us. Um, <laughs> force, oh, we got to force us to shut down. So today, so, it's, you know, so this kind of, maybe you think of it's old news back in June, but, um, you know, I came up with the idea of doing this podcast uh, based on, well, I kind of want to talk about the gene therapy approval for the Duchenne muscular dystrophy DMD drug from Sarepta Therapeutics. SRP 9001. And, you know, there's so much excitement about that and everything. And, you know, there's gene therapy. You've been aware there's gene therapy approaches in FSHD. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah <laughs> Do <yeah>. tell. <laughs> there's stuff called CRISPR inhibition. <laughs> Who came up with that? I don't know. <laughs> Sounds crazy. You'd have to be a genius to come mm. up with something like that. Actually, it's pretty obvious. Sounds pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> but back in 2014, anyway. We had heard that CRISPR wouldn't work. But anyway, there's several gene therapy approaches applicable for FSHD. There's an RNAi gene therapy approach that has been championed by uh, Scott Harper's lab from uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus. 
uh, CRISPR innovation um, that, uh, you know, initiated with, by you. And um, also we have a company called Renogenics that is pushing it. And this is, of course, not a Renogenics podcast. It's just us. Just us. Um, and then there's uh, Epic Bio also has a gene therapy. And I wouldn't be surprised. And that's also a CRISPR inhibition gene therapy, by the way. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a number of other companies out there that had their sites set on FSHD for their gene therapy programs. Oh, yeah. A lot of things going on that... A lot we don't of things going out there. The royal weed. The royal weed. They're, they're just kind of under the radar going on. And I thought what we want to talk about is just the kind of the path that DMD has taken for gene therapy and how this relates to FSHD. Okay. So, and, you know, because, I mean, a lot of excitement on, on this, but in the end, it's a not a full approval, right? And it's only for boys aged four to five, so it's a very narrow gap, right? And it's also not really a cure, right? So there's a number of concepts I want to talk about. Is the path to um, to how how did it get here, and and such. All right, so I'm going to start with um, a 2018 review from Dongsheng Duan, who's you know, you know, in his own right, you know, quite of a, in some ways, a pioneer oh, yeah. of of, of gene therapy approaches for uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy because of the different, you know, he's kind of takes a little different approach, but, you know, he's a good person, um, you know, to maybe provide a larger perspective. Yes, and yes, I've always appreciated his perspective yeah, on, on this. And so, uh, so here we are in, uh, in 2018. So they're basically saying, you know, uh, I'm just going to read directly from it. Okay, say so, uh, many diseases affect tissues distributed throughout the body. These diseases present a great challenge for gene therapy due to the need for body-wide delivery of a large quantity of a virus vector. A major breakthrough published in December 2017 has now provided the proof of principle for, for systemic gene therapy in human patients. Mendel et al. treated infants with spinal muscular atrophy, SMA1, using a single intravenous injection of a therapeutic adeno-associated virus, AAV, serotype 9 vector, that's AV9. Um, okay. Treatment resulted in spectacular improvement in morbidity and mortality. Now, these are kids that are going to die very early in life. And so they actually are living now and actually having a much better, not just, you know, little, you know improved quality of life. So following this success... I'm reading again, three independent systemic AAV gene therapy trials have been started in the United States to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy, DMD, the most common lethal muscle disease in boys. Okay. Now, the 2018, what we're talking about here, okay, said these include solid bioscience, Nationwide Children's Hospital, which became the Sarepta trial, and Pfizer. A fourth trial has also been planned in Europe by Ginathon and Sarepta Therapeutics. Okay, so what am I bringing this up? So this is 2018. You have three trials set to go and a fourth one coming. Here we are in 2023. We have the solid trial was put on hold. Mm -hmm. A couple times. Wasn't a couple it? times. It's still on hold right now. Um, solid bioscience. The Sarepta trial, which actually became the Nationwide Children's Hospital trial, 
bought it. I think they bought it. Um, that's the one we just heard about, and it got this limited approval for this narrow thing. So that's great, but that's kind of give you an idea. And we still haven't heard the results of the Pfizer trial, which is ongoing, but that'll be coming, coming soon. Okay, so the interesting thing about these is that these all are essentially the same fundamental approach. Okay, that this is um, DMD is caused by mutations such that you don't make any dystrophin protein. It's in the dystrophin gene. And this is on the um, X chromosome. So if you're, on, what do we say, male? If you're XY, <laughs> this is how we're going to get canceled. If you're XY um, genetically and you have a mutation in your dystrophin gene, that's on the X. You only, that's your only copy that you have. You don't make dystrophin. And the therapeutic approach for gene therapy is to put the dystrophin coding sequence back. And the problem with that, of course, is dystrophin is the largest gene in the genome, right? Yeah, it's huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah. And the protein is huge. <laughs> and, add, and the gene therapy vectors have a very limited capacity. Right. So the same approach, making something a small called a micro dystrophin, a, a mini version of the gene, actually a micro version of the gene, and put it in, devils in the details, as we always say, and then how are you going to deliver it systemically with your AAV, another detail, and see what you get. So more approaches is better, is the first thing we want to say, mm -hmm. is multiple approaches thing. And um, actually, in the first approach, isn't always one that actually finishes or the best. But let's take a step back and go through a little bit of history. And uh, just bear with me, because this does all pertain to, to FSHD. I want you to think about where we are in the space and what we still need to do and what we don't need to do because you know, we have learned so much from the Duchenne um, community. All right, do you remember, do you know when uh, DMD was first described clinically? I was like in the 1800s, wasn't it? Same as FSHC <laughs> was also described yeah. in the 1800s, right? Yeah. yeah. So clinically defined, right? right? These things have been around and kind of defined, they can be, start to tell that they're different just based on you get groups of clinical differences. Right. But um, you know what the first gene ever cloned was? And human, first human gene? No. Dystrophin. Oh, was it really? <laughs> ever? <laughs> the first human, it was the... 1987? Discovery of dystrophin. Wow, it was about 100 years after... Uh, after took about 100 years to get there. Diagnosis. Lou Kunkel's lab, right? This oh, that's Eric, right. This yeah, is yeah. Eric, you know that. I know you know that. I Eric know Hoffman, that. Monaco, and, and Lou Kunkel um, identified the... They cloned the dystrophin gene and identified it that mutations in the dystrophin gene cause DMD. That was, you know, 1987, year I graduated high school. Wow. What were you doing in 1987? Uh, Rocking, right? I Rocking was probably making music? mud pies. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> Eating right. potato bugs. You're a spring chicken, my guy. Right. All right. So then um, it's one of the first, now, now this is interesting. So, so in 1987, they knew what was wrong. Not just the genetic mutation, but they knew the problem, right? They... They, in 1990, it was discovered that, um, you know, there's truncated um, dystrophin proteins in Becker's patients. So Becker's muscular dystrophy, BMD, is also mutations in the dystrophin gene. But uh, these are a much milder form of uh, muscular dystrophy. And this is because, you know, where, where in DMD, you don't make any really detectable dystrophin protein. In Becker's patients, the mutations are such that you still make some protein, but it's a shorter 
uh, protein. You've deleted out um, some internal parts of the, the gene and you end up with a smaller protein. But this actually was really key because this was actually in vivo. I mean, people proof positive that a smaller dystrophin gene, you could actually um, live much longer. Um, there were people up in their 60s and plus with, with Becker that had, had pretty good strength. And so you didn't need the full dystrophin gene. So this is really important work from, uh, from Kay Davies lab. And it said that, hey, you know, for gene replacement, maybe we can put in a smaller uh, version of the dystrophin gene. Where were, you know, so that was 1987, early, you know, 1990. How about, how about FSHD? When we, we, had, we knew the mutation in, say, 93, 94, the Van Dutkam and Wujmunga oh, <laughs> papers. <laughs> Sorry, I'm horrible with We names. apologize to them. <laughs> but that was that there was a mutation. But it took a, it took a yeah, lot longer before. 2010. Yeah, really. And, uh... So ninety nine, you had the Gabriel's paper where um, Alexandra Bailey uh, showed that there was a gene there. Of course, not many people believed it. And then you had the two thousand and seven papers by Yuan Chen, um, Alberto Rosa, and um, and uh, Alexandra Bailey again, showing that it's actually a functional protein encoded there that is pro apoptotic and it's a transcription factor, even though no one could detect it and believe it. But you're right, 2010. The Lemmers paper, which was the, the unifying model for FSHD that was published in Science. And that, of course, was with Silver Vandermeerl, Stephen Tapscott, um, Revy Tawil, you know, and, and all the, the gang. And, uh, and actually, I would also include the, the Schneider 2010 paper that was in jo uh, PLOS Genetics um, with Dan Miller. And uh, again, Stephen Tapscott and Silver Vandermeerl and Revy Tawil, uh, all about. Um, showing that it's the actual duck spore. Both of these together showed that, to me, absolutely conclusively, both genetically and cell biologically, that uh, it was uh, in aberrant increased expression of duck spore that uh, led to uh, FSHD pathology. Okay, so that's 2010. So what do we have with, uh, with DMD? Discover the mutation. You actually have the real target. You know what you want to do in 1987. Gene therapy trials start 30 years later, 30 years later in 2017. FSHD, we have our target in 2010. Here we are in 2023. We're, we're being told that uh, gene therapy trials will be starting in 2024. So 14 years. Cut, cut the time in half. All right. So it seems like it's taken a long time, but we've already already um, 16 years faster. Uh, but again, that's because a lot of... Uh, breakthroughs um, for uh, gene therapy for delivery and for everything that, that came from, well, uh, you know, honestly, from DMD, SMA, um, myotubular myopathy, and a number of other neuromuscular disorders. So, so we're doing pretty good. We're in late 1800s. We're making tremendous progress <laughs> in comparison. Early 90s, we had the mutation. Yeah. Took all the way to 2010 before we really agreed as a field on the target. All right. Right, the target in Duchenne muscular dystrophy is to replace or fix the dystrophin gene. Right. The target in FSHD is to suppress or destroy or eliminate the, the Dux4 expression gene. of Dux4. Right. Right. So that's where. Okay. So, so first off, you know, so the fact that we're already talking about gene yeah. therapy trials now at all, we we saved a whole lot. We of saved time. a whole lot of time. Okay. <laughs>
but it's interesting because so you know the details matter so all you got to do is okay you know that uh dmd you're missing dystrophin just got to put it back easy <laughs> right and then they found you know they found that there were truncated dystrophins in in becker's patients which are much milder yeah much milder so you actually now you know you don't even have to put back the whole gene right right so the first idea was um was uh, i think it was k davies back in the 90s said hey put in mini dystrophin it was like six six thousand bases long you know make them make them beckers can't put the whole thing in but many and okay but in the same time other people are doing other stuff so gene therapy back then was adenovirus not adeno associated virus adenovirus which is actually a pathogenic virus yep a little bit risky yeah, well, I mean, actually, when I was in grad school at Emory, the lab next door to me, Linda Gooding's lab, they worked on adenovirus infections and how adenovirus drove. Oh, yeah. Um, I worked in Mark Hayes' lab. I washed dishes for him. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Back yeah. In college. Right? I mean, this was a pathogenic <laughs> yeah. virus. Yeah. But for gene therapy, it's kind of what they had at the time. You had adenovirus and you had retroviruses. And this actually is what originally was used with the mini dystrophins. And they had a larger, they had a decent capacity. You could fit mini dystrophin you know it's like a 6kb mini gene um like a becker's gene um into uh adenovirus okay not and it's not, not adeno associated virus but the issue there you know there's a number of issues with adenovirus uh i mean it actually sometimes caused a tremendous immune um reaction to people that had it it's, it's used for gene therapy for a number of other things using cancer research and everything a number of other applications but for neuromuscular disease like uh, dmd or actually fshd you need systemic uh application of the gene therapy you need to be able to reach all the skeletal muscles in the body and in dmd also up to the heart and so there are issues you know there are other issues with adenovirus that uh it can integrate into the genome and when integration was causing oncogenesis basically you can cause cancer with your gene therapy um and also there was you know some it was basically deemed overall ineffective for systemic delivery okay so adenovirus even though it had the the capacity to deliver i mean from a size standpoint uh, a mini dystrophin that would be therapeutic um it just you know in the clinic for a systemic neuromuscular disease it just uh, wasn't it wasn't gonna um be the be the right thing but that was how they were thinking to deliver but back in the in the 60s in uh 1965 right actually there was adeno associated virus and then uh you know, back in 1984, then, uh, um, yeah, it was AFS actually like AAV a contaminating, it was like an impurity in adenoviral preps. That's how they first discovered AAV. And it turns, turned out to be very useful. Turns out it's not pathogenic, yeah. really. You know, it doesn't really cause problems. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to make it even safer and back keep in, it from replicating once it gets into people. Well, right. So back in 96, they made the first vector. And these are totally different people, right? And AAV was actually used in clinical trial in 1998, just on its own. So kind of like different lines of science parallel line kind of going along. So AAV is in clinical trial in 98. Meanwhile, you're making synthetic uh, mini dystrophin. Well, 1997 was the first synthetic microdystrophin. So what do we mean by microdystrophin? Sounds mini and micro might sound the same, but uh, the mini dystrophins were really based off of actual naturally occurring Becker mutations that were known to be effective. But um, but with a, the advent of AAV or the emergence, I guess, of 
AAV, this is adeno-associated virus, AAV, much different, right? And it's used in the cystic fibrosis uh, gene therapy trials. Uh, and the appearance that, you know, this is going to be a much safer, much better uh, viral delivery vector that actually can be used for systemic treatment. Uh, you also came up with a limitation. Um, AAV cannot um, contain, its virus genome is too small. It cannot contain a mini dystrophin gene. It can only, so you have to go even smaller. So that's how we get to micro, right? So micro dystrophin really is kind of defined as a coding sequence, uh, protein coding sequence of the dystrophin gene is pretty much under about 4,000 bases of DNA. Okay. And now just for context, because I don't know if you, you know, for, maybe that sounds like a lot to some people, right? The dystrophin gene itself, the actual gene and can, you know, all every, you know, introns, exons, regulatory regions is 22,000 kilobases. Okay. 22,000 thousand kilobases, a thousand bases of DNA, right? Which is actually, so you put that it's 22 million bases of DNA. It's about 1% of the human genome. Um, so it's enormous, just actually the largest gene in the genome, right? So um, the coding sequence, the amount that you need, if you wanted to make 100% of the dystrophin protein is 11 KB or 11,000 bases of DNA, okay? You need to get down to around 4,000 bases, okay? So you're gonna be, you know, what, what, 40, it's, you know, 40% of the um, protein, you gotta decide. And so what's the right 40%? And that's what these microdystrophin projects were trying to determine. What, what are the, what's the right parts of the dystrophin gene to include in your small region uh, that is uh, going to provide functionality? Um, you know, a, a, it's a mutated smaller dystrophin protein, but the Becker clinical data suggests that this can be um, so protective and beneficial. Uh, so, uh, so you just need to know what do you need? You know, what, what, what do you need? And so that's what the microdystrophin projects were set out to do. 4,400 to 4,500 bases of DNA. Okay. That is actually not very much DNA. Your genome is 3 billion bases of DNA, haploid genome. Yep. Um, 4,000 bases of DNA, uh, not a lot. Okay. Now, but, but in that 4,400 bases of DNA, you need to get in what, what's got to be in there? Oh boy. You need, uh, <laughs> you need gene regulatory elements to drive the expression of your therapeutic gene. Um, for something like dystrophin. Yeah. You, you need muscle specific, um, you know, enhancer promoter, um, the ones that most people use are based on the muscle creatine kinase. Uh, my old, uh, my old mentor, Steve Hauschka, um, his lab came up with a, a lot of those vectors. I'm sorry, those, a lot of those regulatory cassettes. And um, we've worked with them ourselves. Um, so that's important. So you want to minimize that as much as possible while keeping high level expression um, in uh, skeletal and for Duchenne cardiac muscle as well. Cardiac muscle is not an issue for FSHD, but it is for a lot of uh, other muscle disorders. So you need, yeah, the regulation and then you need the, the actual therapeutic cargo, which is... Uh, you know, in this case, a very truncated version of dystrophin. Right. So, so dystrophin is enormous, right? And so we, we knew that, you know, 
Becker patient. You could actually survive and be relatively mild with a small part of it. So the idea was, can you put in a small enough region? So it's an interesting protein. So you have these things called spectrin repeats, and this doesn't really matter, but the point is there are 24 of these spectrin repeats. This is basically a, a sequ DNA sequence that's repeated multiple times, makes this kind of rod shape of the dystrophin protein. And, you know, why do you have 24? Well, evolution pretty much has a reason for everything. You know, evolution would have decided that you need 24 repeats, right? I mean, this is, you know, and, uh, but they all look pretty similar, but not, but they don't, they're not all similar. And the idea is you need the end terminal. So you need the two ends. You need the, uh, so proteins have two, you know, the, the ends are not the same. You have, you have amino terminal end. That's like, think of it like the front end. The back end is the carboxy terminus. And there are certain regions that you absolutely have to have in the protein and experimentally determined. Without these regions, you don't get stability. You don't get targeting. You need to have, so the certainty. So there was just a lot of effort that went on um, by a number of groups to say what, you know, what can we remove and what do we have to keep in order to have a functional dystrophin that's small enough to fit in, right? And so um, turns out the first one that was put in, first one had one spectrum repeat and uh, it fit, everything was great, did not, did not rescue a mouse model. So this is where animal models are really important. Right, you have animal models, a mouse model that is missing dystrophin, a Duchenne muscular dystrophin mouse model, MDX is what it's called. It's actually a natural uh, mutation in the, in the mouse dystrophin gene that people use. It's been really valuable. It's been around for, for decades and decades. Um, similarly with a the dog, there's natural mutation in the dog dystrophin gene. And you have dogs that get Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Again, now something different from FSHD. Yep. No pets get <laughs> FSHD. Yep, no natural animal models. Yeah, the Dux4 gene is not present in these. Um, in uh, at least the Dux4 gene in the in the context that is required for FSHD is not present. Um, there's been a lot of there's some um, functional conservation of Dux genes in other animals. There is a mouse Dux. There's a pig Dux. There's a dog Dux, but they're not really like human Dux4. They function the same, but the sequence is different enough that um, we don't have a, a, any natural animal models used. So the DMD field was very fortunate because they had natural mouse model of DMD and natural dog model of DMD, just natural in the populations, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so, um, so you check to see if you rescue the mouse model. The first one did not work. The second one was done by Zhao Zhao at, uh, actually the kanji characters are different. I actually met Zhao Zhao when I was in, um, uh, China. Hmm. When I was in Shanghai at dinner with him, he was actually, he spent 25 years at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, and did some spectacular work there. He's now gone back to China um, and he, he's, he's doing work there. Um, but he was very interested because he actually, he wanted to make sure I knew that um, he created the first functional um, microdystrophin that actually rescued the mouse. And that's actually true. He then started a company called Bamboo Therapeutics, which is then acquired by Pfizer. Mm -hmm. And this is currently in the Pfizer. He was actually always on his phone following the Sarepta trials. <laughs> when when is Sarepta going <laughs> to release their data? When is the FDA going to rule on Sarepta while I was there? Because they're very interested. Because, you know, while one hand he's interested in the space, but also he always kind of, people like to be first. Yeah, a little bit sure. competitive. He was the first <laughs> one to show it. Um, 
And his is a little different. He actually has two Spectrum repeats at the front end, one and two, and then three at the back end for a total of five Spectrum repeats. Um, two years later, 2002, is when uh, Scott Harper and, uh, Je and Jeff Chamberlain's lab uh, came up with a different microdystrophin. And this had four total repeats, three at the front, one at the back. Um, and this was also shown to rescue a mouse model. And this actually is the one that Sarepta has just gotten approval. This is essentially the construct that was done. It's four repeats versus five repeats. So we have a five repeats, Spectrum repeats from Zhao Zhao in Pfizer, you know, in trial that we're going to hear about probably pretty soon on whether or not they're going to get the results of that trial. And four repeats. So small, one repeat didn't work. Right. One repeat was from uh, Takata's lab. And, uh, you know, it, it made a, a dystrophin in, in cell culture, a protein. But it, again, did not rescue the mouse model. And so that's, that's really important. Um, Zhao Zhao's uh, microdystrophin and uh, Jeff Chamberlain's microdystrophin uh, both rescued the mouse and, and also uh, rescued dog model. So there's a, a, a golden retriever dog, large animal model of uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, GRMD, golden retriever muscular dystrophy model, natural mutation. And this actually, I think that, you know, both, uh, well, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, also uh, my, the myotubular myopathy uh, trials, which had a natural dog model of that disease. Uh, the, the, the large animal models were actually really, really important because uh, while you could show rescue of a, of a mouse phenotype in these diseases, you know, a large animal allowed them to show that uh, you're able to actually do systemic delivery and something resembling the size of a human. Um, but because that actually was the next real issue was can you do systemic uh, gene therapy delivery to all the skeletal muscles? But anyway, getting back to the to the microdystrophins, it's you know the, so those were the you know the the Zhao Zhao and the and the Chamberlain uh, microdystrophins you know have since been optimized right. So it's the first one that you come out with in the lab you know shows efficacy. But then to go to clinic you know you have codon optimization. There's a number of things that get optimized as you go. And, and now there's more than 30 different microdystrophins that are out there. Different, you know, they'll, you know, try this, try that, you know, you, you, you're, you're baking the cake, you know, you're mixing it up, trying to get something a little bit better. I think one of the, the really great ones we'll talk about in a sec, a modifications that is, I don't believe it's in clinic yet, was one actually done by um, Don Cheng Duan's lab where they found that uh, two of the spectrum repeats in the middle aren't like the others and are really important to restore signaling. We'll talk about that in a, in a second. So, you, you know, not all the microdystrophins are the same. So conceptually, you can have the same sort of idea, make a smaller um, compact gene that can rescue a mouse or a dog model of the disease and take it to clinic. But the details are going to matter, and they're all a little bit different. And then we're going to see this in FSHD as well. There are multiple ways to do CRISPR inhibition. There's going to be multiple ways to do RNAi gene therapy in FSHD, a lot of different targets. And so it's great when something goes, but, you know, you can always do better. And, uh, you know, optimization, you're going to learn from each step. And that's actually what we're going to talk about. The second part of uh, this podcast will be... You know, what exactly are gene therapy trials or any clinical trial and what are the expectations and make sure that everybody's on board. But now we're, we're really going to be, let's get back to um, again, just thinking more about the, the microdystrophin.
So there's now, as you mentioned, more than 30 different types of uh, microdystrophin, and they're all slightly different flavors. But, you know, really a key, key tools in understanding uh, which ones of these are going to give the best therapeutic benefit have been the mouse models. But actually, I would argue that the, the dog model, the large animal model, has been incredibly important. Right. And we mentioned previously that um, uh, FSHD does not have any natural models. Right. So it's one thing, you know, this happens all the time. You see it in the FSHD space. You see it on websites and foundations, these breakthroughs, you know, where you've done something in the lab. Melatonin has cured FSHD in the lab, babaridine, antisense oligos, gene therapy, CRISPR inhibition. We cure it in the lab in cells all the time. Then you transfer it to a um, mouse model. Well, in FSHD, that's a little bit <laughs> more difficult. Our lab, of course, has made the most commonly used um, mouse model that's out there, the FlexDux4 mouse model, where we put the Dux4 gene into a mouse. But this also is why we've made the pig model. You know, I didn't wasn't interested in doing dogs, and actually, dogs don't provide any benefit over pigs, quite honestly. So um, we've made many pig models of FSHD. We'll be talking about those in the next podcast. Uh, but these are really important because, you know, translating to the clinic uh, these different microdystrophins, which ones are best uh, to go to how how to translate it to clinic. Actually, back in, in the, <laughs> with the with the DMD trial, the large animal was really key to that. It wasn't clear that people that they'd be able to do systemic AAV treatment. Um, they used to do limb perfusion studies with, with the dogs. And um, the original uh, clinical trials, as I mentioned, were, were just intramuscular injections for safety into um, volunteers. And, uh, but for systemic administration and efficacy, and then to see which of these constructs were going to be the best, you really needed the, the large animal model, which is the dog. And so in FSHD, we have the FSHD, like many pig models, that our lab is uh, generating and characterizing and hopefully will be available full soon. But this is really important because there's, there's many different, you know, what, what's, what's the best? You know, you just don't, you know, you're not flying blind. There's you know, intelligent design from the researchers on what to do, but you, you just don't, you don't know, right? Nature has said you need the full-size dystrophin protein, um, you know, but what researchers are asking is what can you get away with? right? Nature has also said uh, you need the Dux4 gene and to be off in adult skeletal muscle. But how off do you really need to have it? Right? That's a question we don't know. And how to turn it off and it's things that we're going to get to. And can you turn it off? And so these are things that um, need to be addressed in mouse models and uh, large animal models, okay, to make sure. Because in, in, in the Duchenne space, I make the case that you know the the they're, they're you know the the first constructs. While it's really great that they're in clinic, um, they can be improved upon, and uh, I think uh, by continuing to study the uh, the role of dystrophin, um, learned a lot, <laughs> learned a lot about uh, it's not just a structural protein, and I think that in FSHD, continuing to study uh, the function of Dux4 and the um, mechanism of epigenetic dysregulation in FSHD, you know, can provide some additional insight. You know, the first things that we have, you know, you got to go with something, right? So the first things, it's great, take the first things to clinic, but we got to, you know, you don't take the foot off the gas. In DMD, you didn't take the foot off the gas. And in FSHD, you know, as things go to clinic, we're going to keep getting better and better. But that's also why you got to understand 
what being in a clinical trial actually means, okay, is really important. So for years and years, people said, well, dystrophin is a structural protein. It's in the, you know, it's, it's, it's actually connect, helps, you know, keeps the integrity of the cell. Cells without the lack, cells that are lacking dystrophin are like, um, like strainers or sieves, right? I mean, the reason your CK, your serum creatine kinase is so high in Duchenne muscular dystrophy is because your cells are all really leaky and they tear apart easy. And so dystrophin was always thought of as a structural protein and all the focus from these early microdystrophin con have been on structure. Well, except that we always knew that nitric oxide synthase was a component of the dystroglycan complex. It localized there. You know, people figured, well, it's got to do something, but we don't really know what back in the day, you know? So they were a little bit worried about it, but eh, what are you going to do? You know, and then, yeah, it turned out to be extremely important. So this is where now we have another. So this is actually Duan. Yep. Dong Chen Duan yep. came up with the idea to come up with a microdystrophin that is the first and last spectrum repeats, but the key you know, this is um, repeats uh, 16 and 17. And again, the details don't matter to you guys. The point is that, you know, we learn something new by still studying, um, understanding the function of dystrophin and realize that, boy, maybe those are the key repeats because those are the repeats that are needed for the, the, the nitric oxide synthase signaling. Yeah, to be localized properly. And to, and to properly. be localized properly because yeah. it's not just structure. It turns out that the structural protein dystrophin is a really important signaling protein. Yeah. And of course, that's, you know, so that's not present in the current Sarepta thing or the Pfizer one or the, or the solid <laughs> vector, right? It tells you things, you know, evolve. The first uh, things to trial are not always the best. They're not always the, the things that are going to be the gold standard eventually. But it's an interesting thing because, so, you know, and, and the reason I bring this up is because, you know, I talked to Dan Perez a lot. You know, he started the FSHD Society and, and he's, he's not involved anymore, which is a real shame. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's a... Dan's always, you know, talking and saying, what, what do we need to still know as a field? And he still feels that we don't know enough about Ducks 4. Are That's we missing true. something? He's absolutely <laughs> 100% true, correct. an optimal therapy, he's absolutely right, yeah. We, fundamental yeah. biology of Ducks 4. Yeah, the more you know, the, the, the better, you, the, the, the more carefully targeted therapy you can craft in terms of being effective and safe. And if you were off targets, I mean, yeah, the more we know about the biology, absolutely. It's, it's really so, important. so it's an interesting thing because, you know, people were so running the clinic. Okay, you just got to put duck, you know, gotta, in this case, we got to get rid of ducks for. Yeah. Presumably that's going to do something, but we're not exactly fully, you know, <laughs> right. But that's true. I mean, it's presumably complicated we network. believe that. Yeah. But, you know, ducks for is doing developmentally. What yeah. might ducks for be doing and, in and other all of tissues? All the targets have, have roles. They're not. They don't exist in a vacuum. A lot of them are independent of ducts for regulation. And, and get turned on during muscle differentiation. They're doing something. But that, but that's they have actually roles in the cell. But that's you know? actually a great point, though, Chris. Is that um, that what has ducts for expression done to you? You know, we, we think about therapy. We think about okay, returning to a healthy state, or, right. or compared to a healthy state that has never had ducts for expressed in their skeletal muscle. Now someone with FSHG has had ducks for their whole, now we're coming out and taking right. it out and we're going to say, oh, we're going to take it out and look downstream. But what, what have all those years of ducks for expression yeah. done? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> not just to your muscle, but to your genome. Gene, yeah. To your, to your regulatory. Uh, nobody networks. knows. Nobody knows. It's really yeah. tough. Yeah. And we got no natural so animal a lot models. Of great to experiments to be done, but there's still a lot we don't know. Yeah, I mean, Dan is exactly right. Yeah. He's just, he, I think it keeps him up at night. It's just kind of like, you know, there's just so many, unanswered questions about ducks for that's because the field is still believe it or not relatively young 
as, as we talked about, you know, you saw the whole history of uh, DMD. Right. The DMD gang has been on this since 87. And this is where they and we've been on this since 2010 yeah. on, on, on the target. We've known the target and and we've only then understood really more about it, even somewhat few, few years later. If you look at yeah. the build of, you know, we've done this before. And a lot time. of you out there know this. I mean, you remember being diagnosed, you know, not that long ago when they knew absolutely nothing. Yes. Now we can say that you have this rearrangement that we don't know what it does. Well, the first thing, you know, the Oakham's rule says that it's going to cause something inside the uh, razor. Sorry, Oakham's razor says it's going to cause a disruption from inside the array because that's the most obvious. Thing. But it, it turns out that that and Murphy's many... law always trumps Occam's razor every <laughs> that's time. Right. <laughs> that's right. So now let's get back to the clinical trial. So we go to the clinical trial. We've got these three clinical trials starting back here in 2017, 2018 for Duchenne. Okay. Go kind of look at what they are. The three different companies driving them. Two of them are AAV9, serotype 9. That's the chosen, it's a natural serotype for delivery to skeletal muscle, mm -hmm. but it targets liver. It targets a lot of different things, right? But yep, skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle, but yeah, that's tropic for those. And that is actually a point I'm brought up. In, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you, you also have cardiac issues. Mm -hmm. You don't have that issue in FSHD. Right. Okay. So then they're going to come through and they're going to do um, different doses, right? And they're going to do, uh, let's see, the initial number of patients is different. The inclusion criteria, the, the age of the patients yep. is different. Whether um, ambulatory, non-ambulatory, so, different. So completely different inclusion yep. criteria for these trials. You're only going to start with a few. Yep. Right? And this is phase one, two, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it's... Uh, Safety and tolerability, not efficacy. Right. That's exactly <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize. The way it starts miss. out is yeah. safety and tolerability. Um, the disrupted trial, which was Nationwide Children's at the time, was um, RH74. So it's a... A, re, a genetic recount, a variant that was engineered that of AV9 mm -hmm. that's a little bit different, yep. right? And so we've got two different viruses going, different doses, different. We got you got ambulatory only for two of them. You got ambulatory and non-ambulatory in the solid bioscience trial. Solid bioscience is going to look any mutation is okay. Um, the other two, well, Pfizer says any mutation, and the Nationwide Children's is looking uh, specifically with certain exons, 18 to 58. Um, you're going to get screened um, for pre-existing antibodies to AAV. And then they have, uh, what are the outcome measures? All three of them, primary outcome measure, safety, microdystrophin expression and biopsy, safety, and then safety and tolerability in Pfizer. Yep. That's the, the initial trials. Right. We're going to be predominantly safety and just to see if these things work, right? right? And that's where you start, but that's where you start, right? In the end, you know, that, that's where they were back in 2018. Okay, and we bring this up because again, we're, we're getting into the gene therapy space in, in, in FSHD. Okay, so um, the original trials um, actually were not placebo controlled, right? And of course, these are all gonna be kids because in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the affected group is, well, I mean, kids are affected. Yeah. Now, it's an interesting thing because um, there are also people that are in their 20s that are affected. Most die by their 30s. I mean, this is something you can do for clinical trial design in a disease where the progression is very predictable. Not FSHD. But it's not perfect. <laughs> not but, perfect, but, but, it's, but... It's probably as predictable as you can get. It's about as predictable as you can get. For, for, for a non-lethal disease. Yeah, SMA is really predictable, right? right? You're dead right. by in two years, right? For Duchenne, I mean, it's pretty good. And it's, it's pretty... Uh, it's a huge advantage when you're uh, designing clinical trials. So the larger trial, after showing safety and tolerability and proof of 
concept that microdystrophin um, led, I mean, you got detectable dystrophin in this first kind of cohort. Mm -hmm. They then moved to, um, and now we're just going to cover, can't cover it all because we're just, I'll just go to the, what the, uh, the phase three clinical trial. 41 participants. Uh, and so uh, it was a one to one placebo control. So, how do you do placebo control in gene therapy? It's a good question, you know. So, actually, what you do, because you can only get injected, the thing to remember with in current technology, you only get one shot of gene therapy. Okay, if you're in an early trial and you have the low dose, they can't say, hey, we'll give you the, the high dose. dose. Yeah, that's right. So it's an actual interesting thing. Because, I mean, for the antisense trials right now, right, there's a dose escalation mm -hmm. trials, which are, these are synthetic molecules that can be, this is like the avidity trial or the um, arrowhead trial, whatever, dyne, molecule. You can change the dose of those. Right. But for a gene therapy because trial. Because it's a viral vector. You get one shot, one and, you're, shot. and you're done. That's right. Okay, so... And that actually was an issue with the Duchenne trials. What is the right dose? Too high was detrimental. Too, too low, low, no effect. Was not efficacious. Then you have to get somebody new. Yeah. You can't go back into those people. Yeah, that's right. So, but the, you can do a placebo control. What you do is everybody gets screened and everybody goes through the process. And 20 people get the actual virus injected intravenously over the course of an hour um, in the hospital. And 20 people go through the same procedure and they get, it's same just way. not, it's just not virus. Yeah, yeah. And you don't tell anybody who. And then 48 weeks later, you switch. And the ones that got the virus go through the same procedure. And now they're going to get non-virus injected. And then the ones that um, were placebo, now they get the virus. And then you go another 48 weeks. So then at 96 weeks, you have half of your people have been on, half of your trial participants were on uh, placebo for 48 weeks and then transferred over. Yeah, so you get this kind of, um, you get this switch to the SIBO crossover group and the other half were on for two years or well, for, you know, 90s, a full 96 weeks. And so now you compare and you say, what, what do we got? You can go through your, your metrics for success. And that's what essentially is the current trial that was just done. And um, interestingly, only the four to five year olds that were injected showed benefit over, you know, mm. the seven-year-olds didn't. Mm. Wow. Now, Sarepta somewhat disagrees with this interpretation by the FDA and the older boys. In fact, um, you know, they, they've actually come out and said that, you know, they, they think it actually worked just as well in the older boys. And the, and the reason it didn't look like it was the placebo control group, you know, were, were actually healthier at the beginning of the study than in the younger group of, uh, of participants. And that made the drugs effects look weaker in this group compared to uh, the younger group. And so, you know, they're going to, with a better controlled, larger study, they'll control better for um, the uh, initial peach patient's initial condition. You know, they predict, and again, hope, I imagine as well, that it'll show the efficacy in the, in the larger group, in the older older boys as well. But I think one, one of the other things that's actually important to the FSHD space um, out of all of this is the use of uh, surrogate endpoints, right? So, you know, Duchenne, you know, we talk about FSHD being slowly developing, more maybe more slow than even Duchenne. But, you know, the question is, can you see 
functional benefit in a short period of time in, in this microdystrophin trial. And so they were allowed to use a, a surrogate endpoint, which is, you know, while sure you're looking for functional benefit, the important thing is that the, the point of the therapy is to produce microdystrophin. And so by showing high levels of microdystrophin in the muscles uh, of these uh, the treated uh, subjects, uh, you can make the prediction that that should be to have therapeutic benefit. And so for FSHD, you might think, well, it's always, it does become kind of a question of uh, what are you measuring? So improved reachable workspace, I guess it must be measuring now, or walking or what, whatever, get up and go, whatever they're going to be measuring. You know, I think that the key endpoint is, you know, repression of Dux4. And at least that's the case for CRISPR inhibition, and that will be the case for RNAi. So essentially all the gene therapy modalities that are out there. Um, and the prediction is, you know, I guess, you know, one, one of the questions we get all the time is how much repression of Dux4 will be therapeutic. And we actually don't know, right? The prediction based on levels of Dux4 that are found in muscles of uh, um, asymptomatic individuals or cells of asymptomatic individuals or comparing severe to more mildly affected individuals within families, it, it generally correlates with levels of Dux4 and Dux4 target genes. Same by looking in, in affected muscles and, and by MRI. And correlating with gene expression. And so our assumption is that repression of Dux4 will have their therapeutic benefit. And so uh, that, to me, that's still actually the best endpoint because we don't know how long it may take to recover functionality or if you'll recover functionality, quite honestly. But the, the you know, the syrupt, uh, the microdystrophin trials were designed to make dystrophin, even if it's a mutant form of dystrophin, in skeletal muscle cells. And the FSHD uh, gene therapy trials are going to be are designed to shut down Dux4. So at least we'll be able to show that they're doing what they're designed to do. And based on you know a wealth of preclinical and animal data, uh, you can make the logical leap, <laughs> not too much of a leap, to say that this will have therapeutic benefit. Well, I mean, again, it gets to what's your metric of success. And that's why it was only approved for this very early, yeah, yeah. early group. So, um, and they're going to be followed to see if they maintain their ability. In fact, the very first kids that were injected, Zhao Zhao was showing me this in, uh, when he presented in Shanghai, was that the very first kids that got gene therapy for DMD way back, actually the beneficial effect went away over time. So they're going to now follow these people for four, five, six years, right? Yeah, they're going to keep following right. to see, make sure you have a sustained benefit. Dong Sheng suggests that, you know, it may take more than one injection. We're just going to have to, there are ways to, to get around this. But that is a, that'll be developing technology yeah, to yeah. get a second injection. Yep, yep. For, for right now, it's a one-shot Long-term efficacy. Yeah, long-term yeah. is possible. All right. So where does this go with uh, FSHD? Well, so uh, um, it kind of will get to what we're going to really want to talk about in this second thing, but is clinical trials coming up for gene therapy for FSHD? You know, people have been asking about um, inclusion of children, you know, and we just saw that uh, Epic just uh, talked about their um, trial design. It's going to be 18 and up and their medical um, director or whatever uh, said that the FDA mandates that because there are people that are because you have um, adults in the affected group. 
That's, I'm not sure that's exactly correct. <laughs> I've kind of looked into that. You know, maybe for a phase one, two trial, that, that may be the case. But for phase three trials, there's actually, um, if you can show that um, under 18 would benefit from the intervention, and once you get to phase three, once you've shown safety and efficacy right. and going to a large thing, you can actually bring in people under 18, at least under the FDA rules that, that I read yeah. online on yeah. the FDA's website. Um, but, you know, it does make sense. So, you know, don't get too up, don't get upset. I mean, if you get, but, you know, because cause they just have a different bar. And I kind of want to, I'm going to bring that up. Um, uh, I'm just going to read to you what it actually says, some of the guidelines from the FDA. So reading in the rare diseases, common issues, and drug development guidance for industry, and granted this is a draft guidance from 2021, but it's what I was able to, to find online. Um, there is a section that says pediatric considerations. And, you know, I'll just read from it. It says, FDA strongly encourages sponsors to study the drug in all relevant pediatric populations, birth to younger than 17 of age, so that the drug can properly and completely labeled for pediatric use. As part of these pediatric studies, FDA encourages sponsors to develop pediatric formulations of the drug to enable accurate dosing down to the youngest children affected by the rare disease. Now, in this case, this is when they're talking about where the you only have kids in the rare disease. And, and I had actually suggested some time ago, and maybe others have, that infantile or um, FSHT might actually, because of the more the early earlier onset of clinical manifestation and some of the extra muscular um, manifestations, manifestations yeah. that maybe it could be Consider kind of considered its own disease and right. it could be beneficial because then it could be considered a pediatric disease. Right. Um, that was not, didn't get any traction. Again, that's just me talking. But the FDA study goes on to say, for studies in which both pediatric and adult patients are included, so thus you have both in the population, the sponsor should consider the relevance and comparability of endpoints to both groups, including whether results from both groups can be combined in a single statistical study. Importantly, there are additional safeguards for pediatric patients enrolled in clinical studies beyond those provided for adult patients. These additional safeguards could limit the use of some procedures in children, which would otherwise be acceptable for adults. Careful planning for a drug being developed to treat a rare disease in children is important to maximize the efficiency and uh, increase the likelihood of success of the drug's clinical development program. Such planning should include discussions with FDA early in drug development about the epidemiology of the rare disease and plans for inclusion of pediatric patients in clinical studies. Now, this is not specifically about gene therapy. This is more general drug guidance. Um, but um, if you look further into it, what you, you will see is that, uh, you know, basically, you know, my understanding is you're just not going to get kids into a phase one, two, and FSHD. But in, uh, once you go to phase three, if you can show that there would be therapy, that there would be significant benefit to children, then you can, at least from what I read, get them into a phase three trial. Right. Okay, but you, you'll get that from phase one, too. Um, safety, so it's got to be safe, um, tolerated well, mm -hmm. and then probably not the first people going into the phase three, you know, because you're going to have to start to, you're going to have to show that there would be true benefit, therapeutic benefit to the therapy right. in the early group. And then it sounds like you'd be able to get it. But anyway, that's, that'll be a good problem to have because it means that um, are working. <laughs> you're in trial and phase one, yeah. two went well. Means things are going forward. Right. Yeah. But for other non-gene therapy, I mean, this is, you know, it's, it, it is, it, you know, it's a, it's discussions with the FDA is where right. I get out of this to, to, to make the case. But I think the, the bigger question really came up for, for us, you know, thinking about this is, 
you know, I was talking to Dan Perez again. You know, yeah, his name comes up a lot because I talk to Dan a lot because he's just a wealth of knowledge. It's just they've been, you know, been in the field for longer than dang near anybody um, as a patient and a true patient advocate. Yeah. You know, he said, you know, have you ever heard of this concept called therapeutic misconception? And I'm like, I have not heard of that whatsoever. Really? At the time when Dan first, oh, wow. he said, he said, he sent me some papers. He goes, check this out. Because he said, you know, his concern, he's like, you know, because he heard some of my podcasts. Well, actually, Dan reads the transcripts. Yeah. Because yeah. his hearing's not so good. So he reads my transcripts. And he said, boy, it sounds to me like the people in your audience that are complaining are, critis- are being critical of us. Are under well, some therapeutic misconception. Might be. It sounds to him like therapy. I'm struggling with dealing with therapeutic misconception. And what it means to be in a clinical trial. And I thought about that and I said, well, I looked into it. And we're going to talk about this after the break in a second. You know, that is incredibly important. It is. Why is this not being talked about? We have patient advocacy groups out there, but... I think there are people who stand to gain from therapy misconception. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> they quite they don't want to get rid of it. All right. Well, we're going to talk about that when we get back. I'm going to actually go... so. I got to tell you the um, the other night on you know I do you know I, I'll every once in a while catch a catch a movie on TV. I never go to a movie theater, but anyway, that's because all the good movies remain in the eighties. That's true. And so <laughs> so we only uh, provide quotes from the eighties. So Valley Girl was on actually the other night. All right, nineteen eighty three. That was Nick Cage's first movie as Nick Cage. Wow. Nicholas Cage, Deborah Froman. And um, it is it was kind of interesting. It's 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 basically you know, everyone knows Pretty in Pink. Not many people know Valley Girl, <laughs> right? So Pretty in Pink is, you know, the and Molly Ringwald. Yeah, it's Molly Ringwald. We had to right? watch that and, in a sociology and, class. And Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> for yeah. some reason, that was very important for sociology. Well, right. She was that. One of the things I really like about that movie is I is a quote I always want to use on on this podcast, which is um, Andrew McCarthy's character, who's the 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 rich boy. And and Molly Ringworld is kind of like the the funky, cool but poor, you know, woman. And uh, he says, uh, "You don't lie, do you?" And she says, "I don't have to lie." I've always kind of liked that. That's a good line. Yeah, she doesn't have to lie. Just be yourself. She doesn't have she doesn't have that restriction some people have, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Valley Girl is exactly the opposite, where. Um, Deborah Foreman's character is the the rich girl, the Valley girl, and Nicholas Cage, he's the punk, Hollywood, West Hollywood punk. It's basically just the exact same thing. All of her friends can't stand him, Pretty and Pink, all of his friends couldn't stand her, and they get together at the prom, and all, oh, wow. all happens. Same movie. And the other great thing about it is absolutely spectacular soundtrack. Ah, great. So we're going to so go. listen to that? All right. Yeah, we're going to go. This is going to be A Million Miles Away by the Plim Souls. Okay. All right. From Take Valley Girl.
Plim Souls, a million miles away. Let me tell you, that's as 80s as you get. <laughs> Classic 80s. Really, simple movies. I mean, I should have been like a screenwriter in the 80s. I mean, seriously, <laughs> simple, simple. When you really look at the script, yeah. you know, you know, boy likes girl, girl likes boy. Friends hate one of them. Uh, and then, you know, they sort it all out and run off at prom. I need to start writing books like that. <laughs> off like a prom dress. <laughs> it's just, uh, okay. it's just simple formula. Simple formula. All right, so we're going to get back. So, so I want to get, I'm going to, you know, read you, you know, we talked about, um, you know, this, the DMD gene therapy trial. I want to read, you know, read you something. I want to tell you about something written by Hawkin Miller and he is a, a Duchenne patient. Um, and his mom 20 years ago started Cure Duchenne. Okay. And so she started a foundation much like, you know, Dan Perez started the FSHD society like 30 years ago. Someone, someone decides, Hey, we got to do something about it for, for the family and for things. And so they started this and it's an interesting perspective because, you know, he is now in his twenties and we just had this great celebration of this drug approval, this gene therapy approval, and he can't get it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of reminds me of the opposite case of what may happen in the in, yeah. in FSHD. So what he says, you know, he says, this approval open, I'm, I'm reading directly from um, a piece that he wrote. This approval opens up the floodgates for continued research into Duchenne. If one company succeeded through this accelerated approval pathway, then many more can as well. And these include more established names in the industry like Pfizer, which is in phase three trial for its gene therapy, following on our companies such as Solid Bioscience and Regenix with their own therapies. 
but there are real limitations with gene therapy that we can't ignore. Once treated with SRP9001, a patient can't receive another gene therapy and will likely be unable to participate in clinical trials for other kinds of treatments, such as exon skipping. For some, SRP9001 is the only option and the clock is ticking as muscle cells continue to die. But for some people, it might be worth waiting for technology that overcomes those gene therapy hurdles. However, each person decides what is the right thing and no one in the community should make it out as anything else. And that's an interesting perspective, right? Because maybe you want to wait something when, when it's a personal decision on a certain level. When, when are you going to become part of a trial? And what does becoming part of a trial do? to you and uh, you now can't be in another one right what if you pick the wrong one what but it's something that people need to talk about this is what we're gonna yeah. be talking about he goes on to say that many men with duchenne like me are frustrated and i understand why again srp 9001 has only been approved for ages four to five when are those of us who are older going to have the right to try gene therapy we're working against the clock at 26 years old i have limited abilities but i can still type reach my arms out to hug someone and hold my head up on my own no one can predict when I lose those abilities, but I will lose them. I can only save my muscles for so long. I try not to imagine it, but will eventually be weak and I will be paralyzed. With that said, the promising bit of news of note is that the FDA will entertain a non-age restriction expanded label of SRP 9001, depending on the result of the ongoing embarked trial. So I know the FDA feels more comfortable approving SRP 9001 for that small segment of boys. That's where the most solid evidence is. But as the FDA considers opening up the label for all ages, I hope it will realize that there are some things you can't measure. Many boys on 9001 are still walking into their teens, but many boys not on SRP 9001 are still walking into their teens. See the, the, yeah, the, that's, the, that's the natural the history predictability is it's never perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it may be really hard, hard to know what impact it had, but even if it added one more day to someone's ability to walk, it would have been worth it. Or maybe it kept them strong enough so they didn't fall and break a bone. Or maybe they could play soccer with their friends longer than five minutes. Or maybe an older boy can lift a metal utensil to his mouth rather than a plastic one. These are marginal approvals, but might not come across in data, yet still exist. This is important to form a scientific lens. But at the end of the day, time is limited and boys will die from this disease. Why not give them the information they need to make a decision? Maybe they still die, but at least something was done to try to give them a fighting chance. They'll die knowing that. So it's, it's very interesting. This is, again, from Hawken Miller. He's um, a strategist for um, Cure Duchenne. And this is um, on a website called um, STAT. Okay, And it's titled, The FDA's Approval of a New Gene Therapy for Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy Won't Help Me, But It Gives Me Hope. Um, but that kind of leads into clinical trials in general. Yeah. Right? That yeah. This, to understand what a clinical trial is and... Uh, you know, we've always said, you know, people get, you know, you get, here's a frustration with a success. The success comes in increments. Yeah, because he understands that, yeah, he really has a good handle on what it means and uh, what the limitations are. And yeah, it's, it's hopeful, but it's also depressing in a way. But none of this is discussed at all in the FSHD community, no. at least I'm aware of, nope. you know, and so this kind of, you know, really came came to a head and I kind of debate, you know, Dan had told me a few weeks ago and we looked into this thing about therapeutic misconception. And I'm going to read to you about um, a little bit. Sorry, I'm going to do a lot of reading, but I just want to make sure that I'm getting it right, because to me, it's important enough to get this completely right. Okay. So therapeutic misconception is when clinical trial research participants fail to adequately grasp the difference between participating in a clinical trial and receiving ordinary clinical care. 
and it has long been characterized or recognized as a significant problem in consent to clinical trials. And in this paper, and I'll tell you what paper this is, it's called Why is Therapeutic Misconception So Prevalent? And this is um, published uh, in the uh, Cambridge Q Health Seas Ethics in 2015, um, April uh, 24th, second edition, and by uh, Charles Litz and Ekaterina Piv. Uh, oh man, I just can't kill them, these names. Piv anyway, Charles Litz is the first author. Okay, and it says, we suggest that therapeutic misconception does not primarily reflect inadequate disclosure of participant or participants' incompetence. Instead, therapeutic misconception arises from divergent primary cognitive frames. The researcher's frame places the clinical trial in the context of scientific designs for assessing intervention efficacy. In contrast, most participants have a cognitive frame that is personal and focused primarily on their medical problems. So and what they go through is then they're going to go through a bunch of data um, where they actually uh, uh, disc, you know, talk with clinical researchers and participants in clinical trials and um, try to reframe this. And so the last thing I'm going to read and then we're going to get into this is Nearly four decades ago, Charles Freed argued that a physician's fundamental ethical obligation is to provide personal care, prioritizing the interests of the individual patient. Subsequently, Applebaum and his colleagues identified therapeutic misconception as a research participant's failure to appreciate that participation in clinical trials does not primarily involve receiving personal care. Unlike clinical care provided in routine settings, treatment provided in a clinical trial cannot follow the ethical precept of personal care. Were clinical design, trials designed to provide personal care, they would never use placebos. Constrained dosage adjustments, limited, limit adjunctive treatments, randomized patients to different treatment arms, or blind physicians to individual patients' treatments. All of these methods deviate from Freed's basic principle, individualization of treatment to the needs of each patient with the patient's interests coming first. And that, I think, is something that, that and that's what we want to, want to talk about. And, you know, I think when you, I talk to enough FSHD patients out there, they're, they're, you know, I think the anger that kids can't get into trials is they think the trial is going to cure their kid. Yep. And people getting mad that they don't meet inclusion criteria because they're not getting cured. Everybody thinks they're getting cured in a clinical trial. And I think this is actually spun or not. I, th I think this is a concern that is not being addressed in part because of the relationship now that we have with so-called patient advocacy groups with the... Uh, biotech and pharma people doing the trials. I mean, it's always been a fine line of, you know, the partnerships and you hear these braggings of partnerships with Fulcrum Therapeutics or partnering with Epic, partnering with Avidity. You know, what does partnering mean? Now, when does a patient advocate organization no longer advocate for patients and start becoming just the marketing arm of a biotech company? Hi, it's Vince with ShamWow. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. Nonprofits are allowed to sell services. They're allowed to sell product. You know, there's, there's all these IRS rules. Nothing illegal. But from an ethical standpoint, if I'm a patient, you're thinking, 
who the hell's on my side anymore? Are you, are you, are you protecting the patients to say, Hey, may, Hey, you got, yeah, we got all these clinical trials coming. Make sure you understand what you're signing up for and right. what these are doing. So that's what I want to so, promise things that trials are not meant to provide or just not even discuss. Right. Yeah. Or not even right. discuss it. So we're going to discuss more, more on therapeutic misconception and Chris is going to do more of the talking here. I do most of the talking, <laughs> but I mean, well, no, because it's in a very, you know, the more we looked into it, the more I'm like, I can't believe it was really, uh, frightening actually, but, but understandable. And I think some of them, the, the, really the saddest there places where you, you see this is in, in fatal diseases like, like Duchenne, because the, you can understand a patient uh, and, and a parent and, and a family's uh, feeling that if my kid doesn't get in this trial, he's going to die. He is going to die. Now, is he going to die whether he gets in the trial or not? You know, is the trial going to cure him? No, but they feel like it's, it's his only shot, you know, and it's just, you know, if you've got one shot, it's 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 the hope, and you can't kill that hope, and you don't want to kill that hope. But you have to understand the the, the purpose of the trial. Um, so many parents were so upset when um, the FDA put a, a stop on uh, on on that trial, and uh, they were convinced that their kids were doing better on whatever the treatment but was. We, but we've seen this all the time, where yeah. the placebo yeah. group can outperform yeah. Yeah. the group on drugs right. because with soon, no matter who you are, right. if you think you got the cure and you got the juice. I'm sorry, you it wasn't the FDA, better. it was the uh, the company. The company put a, put a halt to the trial. And they don't have to tell you why they're doing it either. They can do it for their own reasons. They do not have to disclose those reasons. And the, the, But the, the patient community was just absolutely incensed because this was their one shot, you know, and you, you can understand that. Um, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. But, uh, but, it, but it, it really did, listening to the interviews, um, reading about those interviews, what the, the, what the patients and the parents said, what... Uh, you know what the and what the clinical researchers involved in the trial said were very interesting. Um, so you know to kind of sum up what what you said and you know uh, yeah a little more simply, it really does come from these different frames of mind. It seems to from the clinician clinician researcher point of view and the patient point of view. Now the clinician researcher is you know obviously trying to conduct an experiment. A trial is an experiment to determine safety, tolerability, ultimately efficacy, um, and they're also trying to benefit all patients not just one patient. And, uh, you know, you know, ultimately when it comes to, to, we're all patients at some point in our lives. I've been a patient. <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless a bus runs Still us over it. very early. Um, we, we are all patients. And, and so, you know, we should all know what it feels like to care about yourself first or your, the people you love first. I mean, you know, this is, this is human nature. It's, it's completely that's understandable. That's not the job of the clinical trial. But that trial. is not the job of the clinical trial. And in fact, it shouldn't be the job of the clinical trial. Yeah, you, know, you cannot. That's not the job of the physician that's, that's right. doing it either, right? You know, but... to, to really understand um, whether a, a therapy is going to be effective and safe, you know, for, and for which groups of people over the long term, um, you, you, you have to have a different frame of mind. And uh, the problem is a lot of clinician researchers, they're also clinicians. They do. Their primary job is to help their patients. You know, I mean, there were there were some that said, yeah, they told the patient, you know, I, I'd love to have you in my trial, but you, you'd be better off in this other trial. Now, when you say something like that, it gives the patient the very understandable idea that this is for you. We're trying to help you here. You know, so there's a lot of things like that. They may that, be guiding people to a different trial for financial reasons. Exactly. You just you don't, don't, you know. don't know. But 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 it gives them a misleading idea that this is about clinical care and it's personal care and it's your care. And that is not that is not the point of the trial. That is not really what's going on. Um, you know, but the other problem is, uh, you know, patients in trials get a lot of attention because they, they get their hands held. They, they you know, <laughs> there is a lot of attention because the people running the trial have to make sure they're doing things right. You know, you want data that you can understand at the end of the day, data that's interpretable. 
And uh, so that also gives patients the idea that, hey, this is for you. This is clinical care. Everything about a medical setting makes you feel like you're in hands that are taking care of you. So do our mice downstairs. Yeah, they got, got to tell you, our mice downstairs are treated really wonderfully well until they're compared the, to the wild. Then you biopsy them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, yeah, exactly. You know, right. But but essentially, you're you're part of an experiment. But you have to remember, you're part of an experiment. And and what you know, what one of the DMD investigators said, you know, when I say experimental treatment, what patient, what what parents uh, hear is is just treatment. They hear treatment, they don't hear the experimental part. And that's a that's a huge problem. And it's not the fault of the clinician not telling them. That was the kind of thing. There's one oh, the part of these down. studies. Yeah. They're saying. Yeah. They read the consent. They read the consent. And you can tell them a hundred times. You can, yeah, right, right. And you guys are going to ignore check the right this too. Boxes to, yeah, just to say, yeah, 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 I know what to say. We all know what to say on forms. You know, how many of us actually read the fine print? How many of us really understand the fine print? You know, what we see is the hope at the end of the Well, you know, I, I, just, I just took my, I just had my yearly physical and they, they checked for depression by asking me if I'm depressed. <laughs> What's the baseline? <laughs> Have you been depressed? I'm like, no more than normal. I'm yeah. crazy. You want to step in my shoes for a little bit, you'll be depressed. It's, just, but I mean, it's all you know, relative. I mean, it's just, but I mean, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Everyone knows what to check. Yeah. A lot I'm of in, these I'm in, I'm in, you know, and you get in, right? You sign your life away and, uh, yeah. Yeah. and, and then get mad when you find out you're in the low dose. That's not placebo. efficacious. You know, it's not always placebo. a placebo switching. It just depends on the design. You depends could be a placebo yeah. that has no chance of, of getting better. And you may feel like you're getting better because, you know, hope is a powerful thing. And it really does change. You might be practicing outcomes. reachable workspace. You, you might be, you might be. Yeah. A lot of patients really believe that. I, I agree with them. It makes perfect sense. You can actually improve an FSHD, but with functional use, you can put on muscle yeah. mass. You can yeah. actually exercise can help to some degree to yeah. populations, right? Yeah. I mean, you can actually teach yourself to do better at reachable workspace if that's the end, which is why I find it just shocking that that's that's the outcome yeah. that we don't have a molecular outcome no, i know um to make sure these are working in fact actually you know again i just mentioned that um you know epic uh did recently show their trial design and they did it showed that they were at least planning to have three three biopsies and as much as i hate biopsies i don't know any other way you're going to know that it's working yeah quite honestly yeah you do these all these other things at least this is the early thing but this is also going to be until you know that these other metrics correlate with the molecular outcomes that actually show the drugs working or right. the treatments working, um, and and are not just unrelated yeah. to the treatment. We won't really know. Um, you you got to do that first. So yeah. we, I, I, you know, appreciate that. As uh, and I think that would be something if I were designing a gene therapy trial, we'd we'd be doing the same thing. Yeah. So. You know, just in case you guys want to, you know, do do some reading on this, we're going to do these papers. Yeah, There's three really papers, papers we're covering. One, this first one is called "Positive Attitudes and Therapeutic Misconception Around Hypothet Hypothetical Clinical Trial Participation in the Huntington's Disease Community." The first author is Christina Cotter. And this is in the Journal of Huntington's Disease, um, Volume Eight, uh, 2019. Um, the second paper we've been going over has been expectations and experiences of investigators and parents involved in a clinical trial for Duchenne-Becker muscular dystrophy. The first author is Holly L. P. P. E. A. Y. And it was published in a Clinical Trials Journal of 2014, um, February, Volume 11, um, Issue 1. And then the third one we've been looking at is why is therapeutic misconception so prevalent? And uh, the first author is Charles Litz, L-I-D-Z, and this is in Cambridge Q Health C Ethics. <laughs> I'm not familiar, not 
Journal. But in 2015, April, volume 24, issue number two. And, you know, if you're interested, these are actually, granted, these are about different, but these are excellent reading to go through. Chris is going to go through some more of this. But um, it's just, again, to get a feel for, you know, these are interviews with people before clinical trial participation and after clinical trial participation. What were their ideas going in? Yeah. And what were their, what did they learn afterwards on being in? And again, our point is not to dissuade anybody from participating in a clinical trial. No, As always, give people a sense of what what they're really signing up for. Know what you're signing, what you're up, signing for. up for. Know also what you're missing. And, you know, talking, you know, in, in Hawkins' thing, it mentions, you know, you might might not want to jump at the first one. Really, you know, thinking about it, you know, can you be in multiple clinical trials? You know, these are good questions to ask. Yeah. But also, you know, basically, we feel like someone's got to be on your side now. As Otherwise, far as I people tell. get pushed into things that maybe not in their best interest. Right. And they find out that when they find that you're in a trial, it turns out that you're, you know, it's not what you were expecting. And now, you know, again, you can only tell people so much, but at least you have access to the information. Right. And understanding and yes, you know, nothing, we don't go anywhere without clinical trials. You got to have people participate. Yeah. But you know what? Don't, no one should feel obligated. And actually, actually, you know, you see this sometimes. You actually see this on like people. Um, there are some people that participate in a trial. They, all, they feel like it's everyone's job. You must do it. You know. <laughs> well, Government hurting. <laughs> yeah, I know. People love to tell other people what to do. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, you let know. me tell you, one of the things that came out of these studies is the more needles were involved, the more invasive the, um, the, uh, <laughs> the testing that was going to be done, uh, the less interested people were in signing up for these trials. It's very interesting. And some of them involve needles in your spine. Very uncomfortable. Well, I mean, you know, everyone's so willing to pop a pill is what, uh, <laughs> is what you get out of these articles. Well, but, but it's even interesting because I know from muscle the, biopsy is difficult. Well, I know from the Lasmopamod trial with some people that told me they even like, were like cutting up their pills and doing weird stuff. I mean, you still, if you're going, you know, what I guess what I would say is if you're going, you know, understand the basis of the clinical trial, could you be on placebo? Could you be on, is it a dose escalation safety? What are the endpoints? What are they trying to do? And what, you know, how are they going to evaluate it? Just understand that, you know, so you know what's going on. What are the, you know, understand that phase one, two is generally safety and tolerability, probably dose escalation, depending on what you're in. Um, what will this do for your ability to be in another clinical right. trial? That's a that's a key thing. You know, yeah. when, you know, if ever, when could you be in? Um, you know what? People dropping out of clinical trials sucks for everybody. You sucked up a space, you know, and, um, and I don't think we're going to have a recruitment trouble. I'm not, I'm, again, I don't, you know, I, we kind of debated about doing this podcast because we don't want, you know, we don't want to come across like we're trying to dissuade anybody when no, you know, clinical trials are really important. We just want people, <laughs> we just want people to understand what they're getting into. It was interesting. Make an informed decision. Well, it's just interesting the outrage that some people that there yeah, was out yeah, there when, yeah. but when it, when the clinical trial inclusion criteria are out there, and again, it's to understanding the clinical trial. Yeah, is not the personalized. I mean, the, medicine the, approach to cure you when you right. go to your doctor. The attitude seems to be seem to be they have a cure out there. They're withholding it from some of us and only giving it to others. That that seemed to be the the source of the anger. Is that that feeling? That is not the case. <laughs> this is none of these are are approved. The whole point of the trial is to see if um if if they will be efficacious, if they will be safe. You know, and I mean, and for who? Because a lot of drugs are good for groups of people and not for others. You know, a lot of so times so then you go back to the original discussion on the Duchenne trials, solid bioscience 
know, they had, you know, they've, they've had some stumbling blocks. These are, you know, three different or four different microdystrophin, you know, replacement gene therapy trials. In some ways, they're very doing the same thing, and but they're all some ways are very different. You know, the devil's in the details. I always say it. You know, it's just if that's your drinking game, you know, you hit it again, because um, it, you know, you know, is the first one the best? You know, but you got to start somewhere. You know, I mentioned that uh, Dong Cheng Duan's interesting gene therapy microdystrophin, um, with the signaling things. That's two thousand. You know, that you know that's much further behind. I mean, but you got to start. You got to start if somewhere. You, you know, right. um, Mick Mick Hitchcock, who's one of our advisors for me. I'm Mick. I'm he's my. Um, I'm the endowed chair, McKitchcock endowed chair. He spent a lot of time. I mean, made his um, name um, working for Gilead. And he's like, you know, if you're always waiting to get perfect, you never go to trial. That's trials. right. You never, you never, never do, go to because trials. Things always get better, and the, the can, field is always moving forward. At some point, we're you always have to... learning more about the disease, about the targets. That's that's exactly right. right. So, so you know, first generation is going to clinic. You're already making the next generation, right. and maybe even the next generation yeah. as you're going. And when you're joining a clinical trial. You know, it sounds great. You know, the first one isn't always isn't always the, the best. best. In fact, it rarely is. Yeah, that's right. But you, but if nobody participates, you don't know. That's right. But you know, again, Duchenne, you had three trial, three things. You're getting different different age groups, different. You're learning different learning things. Different Which things. one's going to be better? Different things for, and then different. It works for some, yep. and not for others. Yep. And what a disaster if you miss the group that it was going to work, work for. for. Yeah, exactly. You know, or your assay for assessing efficacy didn't assess efficacy. Right. So as Looking you mentioned, the wrong thing. Yeah, as you mentioned, people don't like biopsies and needles. So maybe you do a trial that doesn't have biopsies or needles. Hey, now everybody's happy to get in. What if you get a drug? What if it looks like the drug's working? Gee, and and it's not actually working. You're just getting some minor benefit that's not got anything to do with yeah. the pathogenic mechanism, and that gets approved. What a disaster! Artifactual benefit that's short term. Yeah, short term, and it gets approved. Now it's the gold standard of care. Now everybody is on it. And now everybody signing up for trials in the future is on this thing that doesn't work and is doing who knows what. So, okay, so you, you look more into these papers. So, so what what were some of the more interesting things that you found? Additional interesting things from looking at these discussions on the. Well, it was interesting how you know a lot of people uh, seem to really understand the purpose of the trial when they fill out these questionnaires prior to the trial, but then when the trial gets stopped or when the trial ends. Uh, it's you know, and, and and they fill out the same kinds of questionnaires. It's clear that that uh, things have changed. They they either they changed their mentality or they didn't really understand the, the point of the trial in the first place. Um, and again, I think it's it's the constant battle in the brain between knowing what the trial intellectually knowing what the trial is about and just you know having that that hope that it's for you that it's going to cure you or or the person you love and. Um, and and in cases where it's a fatal disease, it's it's your only shot, and, and that's a terrible thing. But you know, I mean, a lot of these those parents really of, of the Duchenne patients, you know, reminded me of uh, <laughs> of that joke about the general who tells his troops, you know, when they're about to go off to war, and he says, two thirds of you are not going to come back alive." And you know, all the guys sitting there look to the left, look to the right, and think, "You poor saps." <laughs> that's right, because I'm I'm the one who's going to make it. I'm the one who's going to make it. It's like it sounds silly, but but really, this is. I'm not getting the placebo. I'm not I'm getting the placebo. Yeah, I'm you guys get the, are getting the placebo. I'm getting the good dose. I'm getting the good dose. I'm getting the good stuff. I mean, and they're these are done. These are randomized, quadru. It's like quadruple blind is what I think they yeah. actually. I mean, really, because it's like blinded to the doctor, blinded to the person making. I mean, it's blinded to everybody. You cannot rig, to give somebody the good stuff. Yeah. Even if you're a billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, you know, uh, and some of the investigators, the clinician researchers that were involved in the trial, when they were interviewed afterwards, some of them felt really bad. They, they said, you know, I think I really did give my patients the wrong idea, I, you know, but I was just so optimistic. I was so, you know, I was so hopeful. I was so sure it was going to work. I was so sure it was going to help them. And, and that, that's what they're used to doing in the clinical setting, you know, giving people hope and giving them, you know, but uh, it's interesting. We're all human. You know, that's the, that's the thing. But we, the, we ho the hope human. is that we learn something to go forward from this clinical trial that we either fail fast and learn that yeah. it's not working and we can just kill it. Yeah or we learn what's the right dose or what's the right dose, you know, do I, or, you know, safety, it is tolerated really well. Okay. We can go to a larger group in a phase three and we're getting some efficacy and start to learn. I mean, you hope that you learn enough to go forward, but mo most, most drugs fail in phase three. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why drugs are so expensive. Incidentally, <laughs> think of how many billions of dollars it takes to get to that point only to fail. Um, actually the people I thought were the most inspiring. There were some, some parents who, knew what they were getting into going in. And when it ended prematurely, they said, you know, they said, this is the company's doing this for a reason. We don't know what it is. We have to trust that it's the right thing. And um, I still feel that that we contributed to the success of the trial in terms of understanding. You know, we provide it. We're helping the field. But you that's know, the mentality. Do it that's to the help right... the field, to move things forward, to help people that are not themselves, you know, maybe people in the, the distant future. That's the right mentality to have. That's that's the one that cannot fail because you are doing it for the, the real reason, the right reason. And that even gets back to Hawken talking about started the family starting cure Duchenne and he's not getting the benefit from this drug, but you know what? You're still happy yeah. you did it. You're still good. That's why Dan Perez, whether the drugs are coming time for him or not, you know what? He, he did it. He's happy he did it. And thank God everyone should thank him for doing, for starting FSHG Society back when they started. You were doing the world of public service, you know, yeah, back when they were a patient entered. advocacy yeah. organization <laughs> and actually, um, and, uh, and, but cause you have to do, someone's got to start it and realize that maybe, you know, I understand people think, but you know, the thing that, but that's, you know, the good news, you know, when people ask about kids, I'm like, you know what, the good news for FSHD is it, it is, it's much as it sucks, it is slow, slowly progressing as some of these others, it's not fatal, and we're going to get there. And, you know, we're going to get there, but it's a, it's a long path. And there's going to be failures and successes, learning curves on things. And you are part of an experiment, a necessary, a necessary part of an experiment. experiment. Yeah. But just understand, you got to go into your eyes completely open, yeah. you know, and for and to understand what's going on. But if you call now, within the next 20 minutes, because we can't do this all day, we'll give you a second set absolutely free. So why are we bringing this up now? Okay. You know, there's always been, you know, associations between biotech and pharma companies and, and the foundations. And, you know, um, people sponsor meetings. They sponsor events and such, you know, pay for the Panera sandwiches uh, and then show their their infomercial, whatever, you know, you know, educating the community about what's coming and such. And that's, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, in the in the month when we've I guess been off the air, I shouldn't say away because we haven't, haven't gone anywhere. Um, in the month we've just been chained to the lab bench. Um, you know, we still get emails. We still hear what's going on in the space. And Boy, it seems like suddenly, you know, the, the space has, oh, God, I think I jumped the shark, but that's that's not the right one. Sold, sold their souls, I guess. Is that what you do? Yeah, you jump the shark when it's just a desperate move for attention. Well, that's definitely gone on. <laughs> but also, I think what I'm thinking of is kind of sold their souls 
um, when basically you'll do anything for money, right? Give, you know, the, you know, the hell with, you know, your mission, just give me the money. And boy, that's the, that's the feeling that, that I'm getting. Um, and, and a number of other people said, at what point, and it seems we've crossed that point, does a nonprofit patient advocacy organization just become a PR firm for biotech? You know, um, fee for service, PR, uh, round you up, get you into clinical trials. Uh, I mean, cheerleading is one thing, but holy cow, has it is it gone over the at least in the U.S. here? Has it gone over the edge um, lately? And again, that's not just me. That's a number of people. Um, we're just kind of like, you know, a seismic shift in the space, right? Not saying anything's illegal, but man, the ethics of it are highly questionable. And, and it got uh, us thinking about, I mean, really, I mean, you, you hear some of this, you see some of this, and you think, man, who's in it for, who, you know, who's protecting the patients? Who's in it for you? You know, because... I mean, I understand, you know, a lot of people, you know, see, see you as, as, you know, a dollar bill or see you as a patient, you know, as a means to an end, I guess we should say. But, you know, I, honestly, I think, you know, patient advocacy organizations should advocate for the patient, right? And, um, I mean, seriously, I mean, I saw <laughs> something, come, I had a, some spin came through my, my email, and honestly, all I could think of is uh, the banjo minnow. Okay, I am, I am a, a I will, I'd say I, I, I'm a fisherman. I love, I love fishing. I'm lucky if I get to go once a year. I haven't gone this year yet. I'm hoping to take the lab up out on Lake Tahoe. But there's this thing called the, the banjo minnow. And, you know, back when I was in graduate school at Emory, um, this would be back uh, early 90s. You know, I'd, I'd get home at 1 a.m., um, 2 a.m., whatever. We actually didn't have cable. We couldn't afford cable. But it's interesting. Um, uh, the Home Shopping Network, <laughs> QVC, um, is not a cable network. It's actually on free TV. Back then, they used to have free TV, I guess. It was sort of, well, I don't know how to relate it. But anyway, through an antenna, no cable. And um, so I didn't have a whole lot of options late night. And, man, the Banjo Minnow infomercial was always on. And man, this is this most amazing thing. It is this man. They they swear that it has, it it, it has a gen, tricks the fish genetics makes fish bite when they're not hungry, can make the worst fishermen into the best fishermen, catch more fish, catch any kind of fish, fifty types of fish in thirty days, salt water, fresh water, any size, you name it, banjo minnow. You know, and I didn't have any money. I I was like, I actually had really didn't have any money. I was on student loans. And um, which I paid off as an idiot. Evidently, I paid off my student loans. Um, but uh, um, you know, so I really had to think about it. But man, they just sold me, sold me. And I, I'm pretty, you know, someone who very skeptical of things. You know, but they sold me, and man, I got the banjo minnow. Finally got that thing, and for like forty bucks, and it sucked. Okay. And, you know, because no one's looking out for you. You just, you know, you just, you know, man, it's just the greatest thing. You just get caught up in the hype. Yeah, man. Yeah, I want to catch more fish. Yeah, I want it to be easier. Yeah, I don't want to have to worry about if they're biting or not or whatever. And, you know, and, but now here we are. And I'm, it's actually almost pre-internet. It was before Al Gore invented the internet. And, um, you know, now you can go online, though, and there's, there's advocate 
organizations, <laughs> fishing advocates and um, people for, for everything, you know, and you can say, oh, well, here we go. Let's let's look at the reviews. You know, does does the banjo minnow catch fish? You know, now I can look online and see, you know, instead of just taking the company's word for it, taking the people that are selling it to me, take, they're taking word for it. I can find out, OK, here's here's some people who actually ran it and actually tested it out, almost like they did a trial. So what are the pros? Targets all major game fish. Subtle lifelike appearance. Extremely, which I I disagree with. Um, extremely sharp hooks. Included DVD. Great colors and sizes. Oh, but there's cons. What do you know? How about that one? That's what an advocacy organization do. They should tell you about the cons. Expensive. Hard to hook fish. Does not perform as well as the commercial claims. Hmm. Let's see, we got some of the clinical trial data back, and the company says it's spectacular. Um, but, you know, you talk to the people in the trial, and eh, not so much, maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe we should, instead of cheerleading, maybe we should question, you know, did, is this really working? Um, new lure design means original lures are not um, available. Okay, well, guess what? The first generation is never as good as the second generation or the third. Um, but also remember, they're in the business of selling you things. So you always got to come up with something new. It doesn't necessarily mean it's better. And then predators with teeth will easily rip it to shreds. All right, so they're expensive and you're going to have to keep buying them, almost like it's a pill <laughs> or an injection. You're going to have to just keep buying it. I forgot to tell you that when that goes, when that goes, that's a con as well. All right. So, and then you kind of go through. Let's see some of the reviews. What are the reviews? They would just say, um, they call it a genetic response. It's a reaction bite because of it looks. So a fish isn't hungry, it just sees this thing, and it just comes out of nowhere and bites it, right? It makes fish bite even if they're not hungry. But does it work? All right. So when an independent evaluation of the data uh, actually comes out and says, um, does it uh perform like the commercial and they actually say no okay um it claims that it can uh you know um make anybody into you know the skill of a professional fisherman very 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 unlikely according to this review and this is a, you know it's not just one person it's actually a group that's cut them together right and so you know thinking about it basically you know they're saying it's you know it's not a whole lot different than a lot of other lures. Not a whole lot of benefits. Not a you know, it, yeah, sure, it can work. Not as good as they say. They're selling you something, right? Why do I bring this all up? You're saying, I just went on a long rambling rampage about the banjo minnow. Well, you know, because, you know, it's good. You know, if you're constantly bombarded by people that are selling you something, uh, you know, that that's not someone who's advocating for you. That's someone who's advocating for the seller, Okay. And we're just kind of concerned that um, you want to make sure that, again, that you guys have, have everybody has their eyes wide open. Uh, you know, I just, just who, who is looking out for you? Well, we're looking out for you because I'm not selling you anything. And, and you know, I guess I have a, um, my own for-profit company called Renogenics. Uh, you know, it's um, more than happy to have any sort of laser focus pointed at us for accountability. That's fine. No worries there. Um, but that, you know, we're speaking, to, we're trying to educate everybody in, in general terms and, you know, and keep people unbiasedly educated as to what does it mean to be in a clinical trial. And everything we just talked about pertain, would pertain to our clinical trial when it, when it um, comes out. Okay. You know, under, and hopefully we'll do a great job of educating everybody in, um, instead of, uh, 
well, <laughs> instead of propagandizing everybody. Now, again, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I have nothing against the infomercials put out by uh, the, these um, biotech companies. I think it's great that they give their spin on it, but understand it's their spin. We just felt that somebody has to step back and look at the spin and make sure you understand. Again, as we mentioned, is it is it dosing and tolerability? Is it dose escalation? Is it safety? Um, you know, are they taking biopsies? Do they need to take biopsies? Should they be taking biopsies? Maybe they should and they're not. Um, you know, just looking for gene expression. You know, what, what are the caveats? You know, when it comes to gene therapy, sometimes what you, you know, if you think about CRISPR inhibition or CRISPR editing or any type of CRISPR, you know, the Cas proteins, no matter whether it's Cas9 or Cas13 or whatever, dead Cas, um, those are bacterial encoded proteins, okay? Um, and, and they're foreign. Even the engineered mini Cas's are foreign proteins, completely foreign, that are being put in. No one knows what these are going to do in a systemic expression in your skeletal muscle. Okay, it's never been done. It's a true experiment, right? Um, what happens if these express in your heart? You know, you don't need to affect your heart and FSHD. You don't need to everything's fine. What happens if they're expressed in liver or kidney or whatever? I mean, there's just a lot of questions, right? And there's, yeah, you know, um, we have non-human primate uh, data. Everyone will have non-human primate data that supports safety, but, you know, in a non-human primate, I'm going to trial. This could be short-term data. And, well, you're a human primate. <laughs> That's your, you're the experiment animal. And there will be long-term, Right. Um, remember, the, the COVID vaccines all uh, passed uh, FDA approval. <laughs> they went through supposedly all the safety testing. And, you know, they call me a conspiracy theorist or whatever you want, but there's an awful lot of cardiomyopathy out there that didn't, in the younger generation than, than used to be there. I know that my heart problems started just uh, a couple of years ago. I'm not, I, I don't, never had them before, and they don't run in my family. Uh, so, you know, just because you know, it's a true experiment. Right. And we just want you to have your eyes open. Now, now sometimes I get in trouble because when I start talking about foundations, everyone gets mad. The foundations get mad. Oh, you're just lumping us all together. And I said, well, you know, you know which ones are out there that are basically PR firms for biotech now. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we have Peter's list. <laughs> I try to always keep you updated on who I think you can trust. You know, I'm rock solid on that list. Uh, Chris Carino Foundation for FSHD. Because, you know, I got to tell you, um, you know, Chris, you know, he walks the walk and man, we're going to do everything we can to keep him walking uh, because he's a solid foundation, funds research and doesn't get in the way. He doesn't really, you know, he basically um, tries to advocate for awareness for FSHD. And I think that's fantastic. Does a great job. FSHD Global uh, Research Foundation in Australia. They, you know, they're, they're, you know, the full package. They do research. They do advocacy. They're doing diagnostics. Uh, they're setting up cl clinical trial preparedness. Um, they're, they're doing everything down there, you know. And again, I'm going to say, you know, I understand you, you have to interact with, with uh, biotech companies. You just have to be careful about that interaction and make sure it doesn't influence decisions. And I got great confidence and faith in FSHD Global Research Foundation because I know the people running it. And I trust them. I think you can trust them too. They're a good, good, good group down there. Emma and Natalie, you know, Bill, uh, you know, the gang. They're they're doing a good job. They got some good advisors too. Um, you know, in the U.S., <laughs> it's starting. You know, it's it's well, 
I don't know. I'm starting to get too. I'm starting to starting to question what's going on. Well, we'll see. We may have to we may have to update Peter's list sometime soon. Uh, I don't know. It's, it'll just say that's up in the air right now. And um, but you know, our our longtime supporters have been um, FSHD Canada Foundation and Friends of Research, Friends of FSH Research uh, Foundation. They've so you know we've we've had uh, good relationships with them in the past, and we'll we'll see how well that continues going forward. Um, you know, we love a brave few in Brazil, uh, MIFSH in France, favorite foundation that really is doing something to help patients now is um, Foundation Ducks that Pierre Laurien started in France for um, kids with FSHD. I strongly support you. Now, that's a little bit different beast because they're helping kids now while they're waiting for treatments. And I love it. I love what they're doing. Um, so, you know, you know, you got to do your homework. Uh, I think what's very clear is overall, you got to be your own best advocate. Um, you got to educate yourself. We're going to do the best we can. And man, you have to have a skeptical eye because, you know, I was on Facebook. Yeah, actually, that was today. I looked this morning on Facebook and somebody, a friend of mine had posted, here's a picture of me after um, I joined the Epi 361 trial, whatever the trial is that was just announced for um, Epic Bio or talking about for Epic Bio. And, you know, they, they look like a, a you know, pumped up bodybuilder, right? Clearly a case of, um, of therapeutic misconception. I sure hope that's the case. But, man, the idea that someone's going to get into a phase one, two trial and they're going to hit a home run with the first. I hope it's the case. You know, honestly, I hope it does. History has said that, you know, there's going to need to be some tweaking. Remember, um, CRISPR inhibition, CRISPR anything has never, success has never been um, systemically in um, skeletal muscle. It's, you know, these have been done in some blood work, ex vivo, going to some um, liver, <laughs> some other tissues, not in skeletal muscle. There are a lot of questions that we need to know about, um, about you know, CRISPR anything in um, neuromuscular disease. And so you're part of a, you're part of an experiment. So these are experiments and very important experiments. And it's exciting that we're getting here. But if you go back to the, the Duchenne space and you look at how long, you know, we're, we're, we're ahead of the game. We're moving fast. We're learning a lot from these other neuromuscular diseases. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I, so we, as slow as it may seem we're going, we're actually compared to the others that have been waiting. We're going pretty fast compared to the history of other fields, similar fields. Yeah, we're, we're starting very fast. Really, I consider us starting really with targeted therapeutics in 2010, yep. 2013, and the idea that we have things in clinic right now, and um, soon some real ducks. Well, actually, yeah, the Vidity trial is really an antisense going directly after ducks for mRNA. The gene therapy trials, all of the gene therapy trials coming are targeting ducks for either gene expression, you know, um, one way or another. You know, so so FSHD specific therapies coming to clinic. It is exciting. No guarantees though, right. and we don't want to. Pour, I'm not trying to pour water on everything, but just it is a concern that um, have your eyes open. Yep, yep. And, that's all um, we want to say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, there's a reason for the inclusion and exclusion criteria, because the point of the clinical trial is to test safety, tolerability, or efficacy of the therapy. That's to, right. Don't be upset about the, the inclusion exclusion criteria, because that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. That being said, if you want to get kids into clinical trials to the FDA, you really need to start talking with the FDA.
that would be something that the field really needs to do. And I really appreciate that there is um, a group of parents out there. Um, personally, I believe that, uh, you know, kids might be the best responders for yeah. some of these therapies. So yeah. it's going to be an interesting no, case. About that, actually. It's going to be an interesting space where you say the best way to test the efficacy of your therapeutic might actually be in kids. And that'll be an interesting discussion to have with the FDA when they want everyone over 18, um, especially early on. What if, what if, what if it's actually kind of reverse where it turns out you're going to miss seeing efficacy because you're working in people that right. are, they're too old. Right. Right. And it right. never comes to that. So yeah, yeah. that's where, of course the thing in FSAC, there's so many range of people that are starting progression. Yeah. If the idea is, you know, and the, and the pace of it's progression, be, uh, difficult. you know, I was also talking with, um, I was talking, well, again, I'm not supposed to put names out there. I was talking with a friend in the space and um, about natural history studies, yeah. you know, and I think what we're learning from natural history studies is everybody's different. Oh, yeah. It's I almost like you need so, personalized natural that's history. That's right. That's right. What's the best control? You. <laughs> you know, and this is where things like full, you know, MRI might turn out to be, you know, yeah. so in the MOVE Plus study, you got to, you know, for MRI, yeah, you give a biopsy. Yeah. Long-term longitudinal MRI. Also, you know, it's interesting. One of the reasons we haven't been on um, lately was uh, because we've been trying to arrange uh, to get our MRI for our pig model for FSHD, you know, and uh, that'll be a whole nother podcast <laughs> and it will be, it'll be our next podcast, I think. And um, good boy, has that been, it's encapsulated everything that is good and bad about research and the research space. It's a Hollywood movie. It really is. Yeah. But there's already a movie called Pig. <laughs> Of course, that's a truffle sniffing pig. Oh, um, yeah, those are. Uh... Well, you know, these guys probably <laughs> those are a lot truffles. more lucrative. <laughs> um, these are, um, but anyway, these, uh, you know, because MRI may turn out to be, and that would be a great non-invasive. Now, you get back to clinical trial inclusion. If you didn't need to do biopsy, but you could still tell the drug was working based on yeah. the muscle improvement from MRI, that would be fantastic. Right. Because yep. again, getting back to what do you have to do and how people are going to be involved yep. and really fantastic that works being yeah, done yeah. Um, by the group, the move group yep. um, and the, the CTRN long term um, longitudinal MRI. Right. Great. All right. Well, I'm going to, um, we've been uh, yapping a lot and it's uh, so therapeutic misconception, check it out. Um, unless, um, you know, you can, the history says that you'll read it all and you'll still Check the right boxes use, and forget. Still to sign up for the drug, which is fine. You know, we but we, we just felt it was our duty to yeah. the community to just kind of make you guys aware yep. of. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Did any, any no. did any guy ever make you a mixtape, or have you ever made a mixtape for one of your boyfriends? Uh, no. Do you know what I mean when I say yes, mixtape? yes, because I had friends who did that in in high school and intermediate school actually mixtapes are really big you take your yeah. favorite songs you make a tape and you give it to your friends for their birthday or it's personalized. personalized for their birthday okay yeah, well, I guess, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. cheap cheap birthday present thinking more it like when i'm care. in trouble <laughs> <laughs> it says my, my, my mixtapes you were in trouble a lot you my, probably you probably my mixtapes generally said i'm sorry i'm and sorry i'll never, I'm do sorry, it again. I'll never throw a lamp at your roommate again <laughs> you got different types of trouble than i got into that was you <laughs> throw a lamp at anybody ever i never threw a lamp at anybody either <laughs> i didn't say it hit them <laughs> but uh yeah different kinds of trouble but um yeah the famous uh peter loves tracy without any mixtape from uh that would have been from probably 1987 again the year of the cheerleader incident and um you didn't tell everyone about those 
Well, I don't really tell them about mm. it, but you know, it's a, it's a Tracy without any modern English, story. modern English. You guys all know this song. It's one of the all time great 80s songs of all time. going to leave you with that. And then we're going to let Jagger take us on home and we'll all be right. back. Uh, and the uh, end of the week with a pig podcast. Yeah, you're going to do that one by yourself. <laughs> I'll do that one by myself because I'm going to get in all kinds of all trouble kinds with of that trouble. one. All right. <laughs> Telling the truth always gets me yeah, in trouble. that's right. You have more courage than most of us. All right. What do you like to say? Peace out, home slice? Yeah, peace out, home skillet. <laughs> home skillet. All right. Catch you all later. Using all my breath Making love to you was never second best I saw the world rushing all around your face Never really knowing it was always mesh and lace I'll stop the world and melt with you And it's getting better all the time There's nothing you and I won't do I'll stop the world and melt with you Peace you Dream of better lives The kind which never hates Trapped in a state of imaginary grace To save this human's race Never comprehending the race I've long gone by I'll stop the world and melt with you You've seen the difference And it's getting better all the time There's nothing new and I won't do
Thank you for listening to the MyFSHD podcast, where we share with you the latest news and information on FSHD as we strive for a cure. Do you have a question for Peter? He'd love to hear from you. You can reach him at peterjones at med.unr.edu. Thank you for listening and join us again next time for more news and information. 